Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stubsky, Alex Welsh, and Brad King. Joining us on our 50th episode is the Design VP for Wicked Cool Toys, Diecast Hall of Fame member, and all-around super talent, Eric Cherney. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Carson. And I'm Eric. There you go, man. Hey, uh, joining us tonight uh, on a very special episode 50, insert applause here, or for those of you with only one hand, do whatever it is the one-handed people do. Um, <laughs> if only, maybe in public, who knows? But anyway, uh, joining us here on episode 50 is uh, a guy I've wanted to have on from the beginning, uh, just because I'm a big fan of his design work, his his whole career arc, everything like that. Uh Eric Cherney is with us tonight, man, and uh, dude, thank you for joining us, and thanks to also to uh, our special guest co-host, Carson Lev, who has joined us again. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited, guys. This is going to be great. Uh, now, you, now you set the bar way high. <laughs> People are going to be listening to this and be like, now this, always put yeah. bars up. Like, great no 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 no. this is gonna be meh yeah. mediocre mediocre if it retains, mediocre if it retains digital mass we're okay <laughs> so man uh it's kind of neat though the neat thing we have going on here is uh you know we've got both you and carson you guys have worked together in the past so it's gonna be kind of an interesting dynamic and i just set the bar high again too so it's going to be great and interesting. <laughs> if you have a problem with that, feel free to write to Brad at round6pod.com. Hey. Uh, but man, how how the heck are you, sir? I'm great, guys. I mean, you know, it's uh, I've been doing this now 20 years in the toy industry, so it's kind of exciting to talk to you guys and uh, chat about various different things. Well, congratulations on that, man. 20 years. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, during our, our during our setup, I was just thinking about that, talking to Carson, and I saw him a couple weekends ago, and I was like, man, I met Carson like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, Eric and I first met when he was an intern at Mattel in the Hot Wheels department. He was still in college doing an internship. Holy moly. What, what color was Carson's hair then? <laughs> kind of the same. <laughs> I'm like Andy Warhol. I dye my hair, so I just same <laughs> don't date myself, right? There you go. I was, dated myself was, in high school. White, though. Yeah, it's true. It's that's it. That's awesome to know. Let, let, let's let's start there then. What the hell? Well, let's go back further. Let's go back further. Um, just after the night of your conception, <laughs> <laughs> you've taken the flippers off. Uh, are you into design at that point? Do, do you know that's where you want to go? I, I'm going to be honest with you, somewhere around first grade or so, I think, uh, is when people thought I would be doing something like this. Whoa. Wow. Okay, I'm impressed. I mean, I, I've honestly, I've always drawn pictures. I've, as far as I can remember, I've always liked to create stuff. 
And, you know, I've had a fascination with cartoons, with toys, with, and as, as Carson and I've talked before, the cars that I like, I would refer to as toy cars. Um, you know, I'm, I've never been into Honda Accords and minivans. Um, you know, I know, Brian, you like the minivans. Um, oh, do I? <laughs> <laughs> For other purposes, though. So, I mean, my fascination with making things goes back, you know, really that far. Um, you know, it's just been been a passion of mine to create things. Um, so becoming an industrial designer and, and creating, you know, toy cars and working in the aftermarket industry and, you know, creating all different kinds of toys and cartoons. Really, it's it's been in my DNA since as long as I can remember. So did, did you have a teacher or anything like that, especially in the early days, like grammar school? Did you have anyone that kind of, you know, it like took you under their wing a little bit and maybe kind of guided you? Oh, I, I've had several different fun experiences with teachers. Uh, I, I went to Catholic school. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. Me too. Oh, that's right. We got three Catholic schools. I got the scars boys. to prove it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went to Christian yeah. school. I didn't go to Catholic school, so I'm kind of sort of there. You have weak yeah. knuckles then. <laughs> but but probably the the best thing that happened to me was right around sixth grade i had an art teacher who took my parents aside and said look your son is pretty good at this and we teach arts and crafts and we're not really teaching him you might want to think about getting him some extra help in art and from that moment i went to the cleveland institute of art i'm from the cleveland area so every Saturday morning, my dad would drop me off at the Cleveland Institute of Art, and I would take some sort of class for a couple of hours. Life drawing, uh, still life. I moved down into the basement, and I started doing, like, early animation on an Amiga. Whoa. And, uh, I mean, yeah, an Amiga. And uh, that's where I found what ultimately would have been what I went to school for, because down in the basement of CIA for anybody who's been down there, is where their car design program is at. So I saw all those great models and stuff down there, and I was like, this is what I think I want to do. Boy, so, I mean, that was the start. I'm, I'm impressed that you started so young, that you already yeah. had a vision of what you wanted to do. That's, that's pretty amazing. And everybody else saw it, too. That's really cool. Well, I mean, look, it's a wayward path. I mean, and again, I, I try to tie everything back to toy. For me, seeing those cars, I was like, ooh, that looks like something I want to do. And, you know, something that the people around me were like, yeah, somebody, somebody makes them their cars, you know, and, you know, maybe you want to be in a, a mechanical engineer. I mean, there's definitely hurdles I went through. I had a teacher tell me I'd never amount to anything if I drew pictures all day. Um, you know, well, it was that, that teacher too. <laughs> you know, it was awesome seeing her later in life. And putting just a big smile because I drew pictures all day. Yeah. <laughs> you realize probably she bought Hot Wheels for her kids. Yeah. <laughs> or you I, I hope her grandkids like Paw Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, so, I mean, there's definite hurdles of things where people say, oh, nobody does that for a living. Nobody makes cartoons. You know, nobody draws pictures all day for a living. And, you know, the truth is you've got to stay committed to what you want to do. And sometimes that means moving. I mean, that took me all the way to Los Angeles, right? That's where, you know, I first started really doing Hot Wheels and realized like, hey, this toy angle could work. Um, and that, you know, I could do automotive aftermarket stuff on the side and I could be right in the epicenter of where all the cool stuff was happening. 
you know, back in the old days of magazines, because this was the late 90s and early 2000s when I got here, <laughs> you know, and uh, so everything that, you know, I had read in the in the mid 90s when I was in high school, all those magazines that I was into, you know, that's where that was the epicenter right here in Los Angeles. So coming out here and kind of being in Hot Wheels and working with guys like Carson or Larry Wood or Scott Tupper or some of these guys who were into the custom and aftermarket scene kind of sent me down some different paths. And my path was different than theirs. I was into mini trucks, low riders and the the tuner car end of things. Um, but a lot of times it was the same people. It'd be one wheel company was making, you know, wheels for different people. So I could go to a place with with Carson and be like, oh, wait, wait over here's Eric's side of things. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The first project we worked on was the tuner car project with the Honda Civics and the project that was with uh, Wings West, uh, Super Street Magazine. Um, it, and it was interesting because when that project started, we were in a bit of a debate with Honda corporate. They wouldn't let us license their Honda car for anything other than a stock version. So I was running the collector division at that time. And uh, I said, look, we don't want to do a stock Honda. We want to do a Honda, like a tuner car, like today's kids, hot rod cars. And, and I was, you know, in my forties, then late forties, um, but still had appreciation for being car based. And it was just very fortunate for us that Eric was there. Eric was a younger guy, was expressive of that culture, lived in aspects of that culture, had a really cool truck and a, he had a Mitsubishi Eclipse a convertible. Uh, and, and, and it was, you know, fixed up. We said, look, this is the guy we need to go to. Not only is a designer, not only was an intern, but he lives in this culture and through Eric's work and, um, Oh my gosh, uh, Dave Martis, Dave Martis, yeah. On the project and Eric and Dave were the designers. I was the director of design at the time. And we went back to Honda with their illustrations of what this tuner car would look like. And the, and the Japanese executives didn't get it. And so we had to put together prototypes to sell them over and, and really convince them that this is, you know, the new version of hot rods today. You know, they didn't even understand their own brand. And that turned into a whole subset of cars for us. Great success. The number one selling 18th scale diecast that year was at Wings West Honda that, uh, that we met Scotty Centra at Wings West through and Bernie and Billy really created a niche market for us that we were able to anchor in because at that point, not that Hot Wheels wasn't doing anything new and innovative, but we'd never really had any products that I felt really were on the leading edge of what was going on in car culture. They were really good at doing things in kind of retrospect after it had been out for a couple of years. And, and Eric can comment on this too, but I really felt at that time we were the first mainstream toy company to do it, the first company to do it with Honda's approval because they never gave it before. And it ended up being a lot of success for Eric, a lot of success for me, uh, relationships, business, licensing. But it was cool to have a guy like him who lived that lifestyle, more importantly, not just being a good designer. This guy was passionate and, and he was really talented. So it was – and then, like I said, we'll go through it, but I've had him – we've worked together and done stuff multiple times through the years since then. But that was a great start. Yeah, for me, like that, that was just an awesome time in my life because I was exposed to so many great designers. I mean, one of the one of the great things I always say about Mattel, and I was just talking to some guys I was interviewing today for a job that I have. And what I was always saying, they asked me about Mattel and I'm like, look, man, I was young and I was around some of the most talented, um, smartest, best educated people in the world in whatever whatever task they were. I mean. Mattel hires from the top 10 business schools. So you're going to meet all of those guys from all the famous business schools. And some of them aren't going to be great. But, you know, as a as a young designer, you're learning the marketing stuff from 
the places, you know, from the people who went to the best places. So yeah. you couldn't get better instructors for free because yeah. they're your business partners. And the same on the design side. I mean, Mattel yeah. had guys from the University of Cincinnati where I was from. They had all the art center grads. They had people from, you know, uh, some of the other top schools. I met some guys from Royal College of Art. Um, they have people now from uh, CCS and CIA. And some of these guys all worked in the car industry before coming to Hot Wheels. So guys like Dave Marty spent time working in the car industry, um, you know, and there were so many guys like that that would go into the car industry for a little while, then make their way over to Hot Wheels. And all of us, what we loved about Hot Wheels, too, was a lot of the parameters that would stop us from doing something cool in a real car did not exist in, uh, in diecast. I mean, I got a chance to imagine future cars, future models, um, just – had a had a blast uh, for that sort of five six year period when I was associated with Hot Wheels. It's amazing. Uh, you you literally, as a young kid, you kind of walked into basically what was all of our dream job. I mean, as a kid, you know, you play with Hot Wheels, which were way cooler than you know Matchbox, but <laughs> yeah, they were definitely cooler job. than Matchbox while we were there too. <laughs> <laughs> We had discussions with the guys from Matchbox many times. We want to put the, uh, they would come and say, well, we want to put a new Aston Martin Vanquish in our line, or we want to put the uh, Dodge Viper GTR, uh, GTSR in their line. And hot, the Hot Wheels side of things would be like, no, those are Hot Wheels cars. Yeah, you we would get, block. You get real driving adventure. We you can get, get the new Ford, Ford Aerostar. Yeah, you get the Taurus. <laughs> oh, wait, they, they have an Aerostar? <laughs> they got a Taurus? Windstar, whatever. <laughs> Windstar, nice. Probe. <laughs> yeah, it, you guys never did a probe, did you? I think you really missed the boat. No, um, car, no not, there was a probe oh. funny car. Oh. It was probe oh. funny car. I have a feeling there's a probe diecast somewhere in yeah. there. I feel like I saw one. There was a Kenny Bernstein probe funny car, and I'm trying to think who the other deco was on. But yeah, they did do it in the, in the racing collector line. Oh, see, that's I honestly cool. think Carson, there may be there may be tooling for it because I know we did that weird Saturn. Uh, oh, that's right. Tube, and sometimes yeah. the auto guys that come in and want to do a car, and I want right. to say there was a probe. I think there didn't was. Terry Choi drive a probe. Gosh, man, you got a good memory, Terry Choi. <laughs> I think I think he did. I also think it was the teal one. <laughs> you realize what you just did to every Hot Wheels collector that listens to this now? <laughs> it's going to be this mad They're hunt on out there. They're digging. That's noted on TV. That's seen on TV. Yeah. <laughs> that guy from Toy Hunters, whatever that TV show is, he's going to be out there. He'll find it one day. He's Jordan. Jordan. Holy crap. Man, I totally. <laughs> But yeah, but, but I mean, you you went into a place. So what, what's it like though, as a a young designer, to go into? And obviously, you're working, like you said, among some of the brightest and talented people. Did you appreciate it at the time, in the moment? So for me, what I thought was awesome, and and I can tell you, like as Carson said, I actually interned there um, as a UC co-op in the summer of '98. Um, and I remember walking in the door for what was the first time, three different times. Um, so, but I remember sort of walking in that door and just being like, oh, this is cool. And Carson will appreciate this because 
there was a sliding glass door, two of them that opened up into the design center and you would swipe a badge and they would, they would like magically open. And again, 1998 to see a door like that. I was like, Oh wow, I'm going into like the starship enterprise. And, Dude, just uh, from Ohio to have a door that opens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, I'm walking in and I, and I played with toys that Mattel made. I played with He-Man and I played, you know, with with other toys that Mattel made, Hot Wheels cars, obviously, and this is and this is where I'm going, right? You know, and I'd never I had gotten the job from Nathan Proch, who was also a UC guy, and he had been taking a series of co-ops out. And one of my friends, Garrick Zach, who um, I think he's at Hyundai now, um, maybe maybe back at General Motors, he had interned with Nathan over the previous winter and recommended I go out, and. So Nathan picks me up and I go through the doors for the first time. And I'm like, this is wild. This is just like, it's a weird, it's a toy box. It's your dream come true. Um, I'm meeting all these great people and there's, there's a little starstruck quality to it. Cause you're seeing all this great work everywhere. Um, but you know, everybody was really cool. They were super welcoming, um, really shared a lot of their knowledge. Um, I still have, uh, morgue files. If you guys remember like morgue files where you'd oh, like yeah. get all the, <laughs> literally I have like sheets of plastic filled with cutouts from, uh, car design news. And, um, well, it was not car design news. Well, the car design magazine from back in the day. Um, but it has literally Xerox copies of guys work that, um, I remember at Mattel guys would show me new techniques I'd never seen before. And I would just be like, can I throw that on the copier? You know? And back then too, the, the copier was awesome because it was free. Oh, I mean, yeah. I did my whole portfolio. Really good color copies. Yeah. <laughs> I did my whole portfolio uh, after my second internship in uh, the winter of '99, January to March, because I figure I'm going back to college. I'm going to have to get a job. I did my whole portfolio at night at Mattel because I was like, "This is Xerox printer, man. It's like ten cents." <laughs> That's why the toner budget home. was out of whack that year. <laughs> well, now you know why. Yeah. Didn't when have to swipe your ID badge. Nice. <laughs> hey, Eric, was the gas station built inside there, or were you there when we built the gas station? I was there when we built it. Yeah. You know, that was, that was, that was the project. Yeah, like, I mean, that's why I really loved the time that I was there, because I kind of came in, right? You know, it was summer 98. 95, I think, was the year that they introduced the uh, sort of collector strategy with treasure hunts and the uh, the various series cars and stuff. Right. and. Black box, 100% collectible, yeah. And I was coming in as Hot Wheels was kind of peaking, I think. It, it peaked somewhere in that early 2000s, I think, revenue-wise. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a really good time. We did a lot of really cool stuff. Um, you know, you just, it was amazing to meet people like Larry Wood and realize, like, he had been working on cars that I played with. Yeah. Um, similarly, I remember walking over to the boys' action area and seeing the, hot, uh, the He-Man guys and seeing, like, Dave Wolfram and, being like, oh, man, I played with He-Man. He's like, don't talk about that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no. you know, these guys were like, I was young back then when I did that. I'm having that experience now. 20 years in the industry, I'm finally starting to see kids that coming in played with toys I made, um, which is a little bit uh, psychedelic for me. You know, it's like, whoa. <laughs> so, you know. But yeah, I mean, I, I totally appreciated what, uh, what happened. And as I said, it was, for me, it was like three times walking through that door. That was that first internship. There was coming back, um, in January of 99 
And then in July, I think it was like about July 12th, I stayed home for one more 4th of July after graduating in June. And I got in a car on July 5th, drove cross country. And I think I started like around July 12th um, at Mattel full time. And, uh, you know, each time I walked through that door, I was still amazed, you know, even uh, in fact, even leaving the place for the for the last time, I was like, man, I don't get to go back in there anymore. I kind of wish I could go back in there. Yeah. You had your hands in a ton of cool projects. Do you, do you have any notable ones that were your favorites? Well, as Carson said, I got to do all kinds of stuff. And probably the the two things that I got to do that I that I loved the most was uh, was the tuner stuff. And I did a lot of tuner stuff. I did a car that called Showstopper that was on all the packaging from right like 2000 to 2003, 2002. Um, and that was a huge honor. I mean to me that was like my arts on every single car because back then they had one car yep. that was featured on the card and that was on literally probably yep. a billion prints over that time because they make like a million cars a week so you know in that whatever 150 weeks that my car was on the cover of the of the uh cars they must have made a just a l massive amount of cars so amazing um, so that was super cool. And then, uh, and like I said, all those tuner cars, it, it culminated in a line called, uh, hot tuners that was once called car tuners, these like kind of cartoonized, uh, tuner cars. And, you know, I did a bunch of like escalades and all that kind of dub type stuff as that stuff was all hitting. Right and as Carson said, it was kind of like it ran counterculture to a lot of what was going on in hot wheels with some of the, the old guard. Yeah. Uh, and I was kind of out there first. I mean, before Jada Toys was a thing, before, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Muscle Machines was before a machines. big thing, this stuff was kind of trickling out. And even Muscle Machines was more like what the guys, the old brass at Hot Wheels wanted. They're like, put a big engine. I'm like, it's a Honda Civic. The engine is sideways at half the <laughs> yeah. size. Yeah. Put big exhaust on it. <laughs> Nothing yeah. beats a big chrome transaxle hanging out of a hood. <laughs> and they were like, they were like, you know, put little you know, bigs and littles on it. I go, can I just put four bigs on it? Like as big as possible. <laughs> and they're like, but why I go? Cause people are putting like 19 inch rims on their civics. I'm like, they don't put little ones and skinny ones up front. Cause that's where the power is. <laughs> um, the interesting thing for us through Eric's work too, it also established credibility in the real car world. So like car enthusiasts, the kids who were growing up, those cars finally had a brand that they felt reflected what they were doing because most other diecast companies wouldn't even pay attention to them. So that well, credibility I, definitely enhanced our sales and built some careers. And there's some interesting stuff that happened around then. Cause the other thing that I really liked to do, cause I was still, I was still in that mindset of like, of a car designer. I'd gone to school thinking I was going to be a car designer. And then I found toys again and I was like, this is home. But as I was designing these other cars, I would get to work on the basics every once in a while, which are like the premier, uh, cars that people collect those 99 cent cars and i did a bunch of cars starting with muscle tone that were kind of predictors of what detroit would yeah. make yep. um if we were hot wheels right so hot wheels were like ah let's you know do our thing and maybe maybe sort of predict what uh what detroit would do plus that would give us a cool looking plausible reality car that uh could be out there but we don't have to pay a license for if we stick it in a track set or something so I did uh, muscle tone and switchback and a variety of these cars, tantrum, all these cars looked like real cars on the street, but they weren't licensed. 
Um, and that also ushered in to what Carson was saying, this different look that I, when I was in school for car design, we were doing cars with much bigger wheels. The proportions were starting to change that small DLO big wheel, uh, kind of look that is really evident in cars like the 300 C right that on. was the prevailing style in the late nineties, early two thousands of car studios. Everybody was like, just make the big wheels, stretch the body between the big wheels and make a little DLO. Um, and that dominated. I mean, you see that in the new Camaro, you see that in the new Mustang, that, that look, that big slab sided look with the big wheels, uh, really kind of originated then. And you see it in a lot of my work from back then. Oh, definitely. Well, it's interesting. I can give Eric credit really is predicting where car design was going to go. If you look at that showstopper, this was done during a period when Camaros were no longer being built. And when you looked at the new Camaro and you looked at that car, you went, wow, I wonder if those guys had that car sitting on their table. Because there yeah, are some so, cues in there that are very, very significant funny, though. proportions. So, yeah, that, that specific car, that muscle tone car, a editor at GM High Tech Performance, that's I don't right. even know if that's a magazine anymore, um, they, <laughs> they literally bought that car and they called Hot Wheels PR. And I, they did a whole article on it as a predictor of the fifth gen Camaro. Right. Um, you know, had my illustrations in there. They asked me all of my stuff. And, you know, we had a whole conversation on the phone about like how it how I designed it. And there's there's some lines. It's definitely was Camaro inspired, but it's got some stuff in it where the deck lid looks a little bit more charger. Um, there's some different stuff in there that, uh, you know, we might have some uh, muscle, uh, some Mustang DNA. But largely it was a predictor of what a Camaro might look like. Um, and that was super fun for me to just kind of sit down and kind of pin what I thought these cars might look like. Cause as a young car designer, that's what you go to. That's what your dream is, right? You want to work on Camaros and Mustangs and Ferraris and GT forties. I mean, okay. you know, I didn't know anybody in school who was like, I want to design the next, uh, you know, I don't even know. Toyota Corolla. A pacer. I, think I want to do a pacer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do the rear door panel escutcheon for the handle on the next Sonata. That's most of them did, taillights and, taillights and door handles. It's interesting, too, because at that time, 99.9% .9 of the die-cast industry, if not 100%, was reflective of what was going on in car culture out there already, either cars that were coming out or historical cars. Through Eric's work and a few other people and through a few other projects, it ended up going the other way. The tail was wagging the dog. What was happening in the die-cast industry started to affect change in the car world and and that's kind of a heady statement but there's there's evidence down there to, to support that argument oh yeah i mean there's definite shots like that because there were some other hot wheels designers like frazier campbell mm -hmm. alec tam even mark jones who as yeah. i did some of those cars and and honestly i was very thankful for guys like nathan proach because he was kind of a, a mentor yeah. and a whisperer yeah. and carson yeah. as well but nathan the basic line fell under him so as I was doing some of this stuff, he was like, yeah, I want more of this. I want more of this. And it uncorked those guys. Yeah. And then their imaginations went crazy. And they started predicting cars of the future. And Phil Reelman started doing crazy yeah. looking cars. And the stuff that we were doing was, it wasn't the like six engine car anymore. Um, it was like my take on a new Camaro or my take on a new Mustang or some sort of other thing. And I remember, I, I want to say Mark Jones's, uh, he did something called pony up that similar story. The Mustang guys were yes. like, 
this is what we want. I mean, right. if you remember like a 98, early 2000 Mustang where the, the door got really flat in the middle, yeah. <laughs> that was the crummy car they had on the street before what what is out now, which is a very handsome looking car. And if you look at Pony Up, you can yeah. see the lines in that. Yeah. You know, so it was fun to be part of that as well, especially as like a guy who, you know, thought he wanted to be a car designer and studied that. And, you know, the other thing too, like you guys were joking about designing the door handle or some weird tail lamp assembly or, you know, the way that the gas door opens, um, you know, I would sit down and like sketch one of these cars up one night, you know, hopped up on Mountain Dew and uh, candy bars from the vending machine and <laughs> whip some rendering out and then show ever come in the next day, like a young puppy, like Nathan, look what I did. Look what I did. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, let's do it. But make it red. <laughs> like that was that was about as much design like like criticism you would get. And the reason would be like we have too many blue cars, so any color other than blue. Like, you know. Oh, that's any the only constraint, really? <laughs> so Most of the time. <laughs> and you had to make it go together in four pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Done. <laughs> <laughs> really but, it was, but to that point it, you get to design a complete car it yeah. may be a small scale car but you get to design a complete car not a taillight not just a fender not just trim not just a seat not just emblems a hot wheel designer gets to design a complete car yeah it's literally a dream come true and yeah. i had probably designed more cars in a year than most of my friends in the car industry yeah, would, would design be. in their whole careers yeah you're right yeah Oh yeah, and yeah. the great part is you get to bypass that whole like the legal, you know, yeah, legal yeah. department. Yeah. You don't have to worry about the engineers coming in and going, "Well, this has to fold a certain way in this kind of an impact." Yeah, no crash testing, no, no smog. Yeah, yeah. it's got to make sure. Yeah, make sure the deck lid doesn't fall off and choke some kid. Perfect, done. And I will tell you something that's really cool about the time I was at Hot Wheels that is different about today. Um, they've had some management changes and stuff over twenty years, and the current people running the place are very focused on kids. When I was going there, there was a split between uh, collectors and kids when I was working and I got to like break some rules today. Every single one of those cars in the 99 cent line has to do a nine inch loop or a 12 inch loop. I'm not sure what specific size, but that really requires the car to sit a little higher off the ground, have the bumper maybe raised a little bit stuff that isn't as conducive to the styling of a modern car. Um, which is very low and, you know, very aerodynamic and sucks to the ground. And I got to do cars. There's some of my cars. I did a 64 Riviera while I was there that literally, I don't think it can drive over a piece of chipboard. If you put the, <laughs> some chipboard in the way, the bumper hits it. You are my hero. <laughs> do, do you want to tell the famous story on the, on the Rivi and who took credit for the design before you did it, uh, Eric? <laughs> Well, as Carson... And... <laughs> I'm throwing him one here. Well, the real question, Carson, is, business. can we legally tell anyone that story? Oh. Well, oh, this just got saucy. Go for show. it. I like. Why, why don't you tee it up a little bit, I'm... Carson? Right, I'll, I'll oh, this is good. Plausible deniability. This is awesome. And, 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 and I'll bait him up with one of my stories. At the time, Jesse James had his Monster Garage show. And it's funny, a lot of people don't know this, but Jesse wanted Chip to be his designer on that show where they built you know, a Zamboni into an ice machine. And right on. the one that just still chased my hide is he took the Gary Cochran 1963 top fuel car and turned it into a hot dog car. Hot yeah. dog car. Anyway, um, 
Jesse owned a Rivi at the time, and Eric did a Rivi uh, that was, uh, you know, a Rivi's a Rivi, but Jesse laid claim that that was his design, his car, and why did Eric steal his design? And Eric's like, what, you, you own the only orange Riviera in the world? Come on. I, well, I have that car sitting on my desk as we're talking right now, which is awesome. Flames. I, I actually asked him when the whole thing came out. I'm like, yours doesn't have purple and green, lime green flames on it. Right. And I'm almost 100% certain you don't have purple windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did the week after. <laughs> but I think if you remember that, if you remember his very first special, I think he buys that car in the special. Yeah, I think and, he did. And he, he bought or commissioned some other guy to build that car. And I don't think yeah. he had a whole lot of input in it. And what's really funny is the dating on the taping of that episode and what I was doing were pretty similar. I would have never seen this car, but I remember when it hit the cover of Lowrider magazine and I was like, wow, that's really close to what I just approved <laughs> at FEP. <laughs> right. You know, and, you know, Jesse definitely, uh, def definitely took, uh, you know, offense with it. Um, and, ha and had some choice words for a group of us. Um, yeah, back in those days, he took offense with everything. I've had a few choice words there, too, so, yeah. I will tell you a funny story, and I don't know if Carson remembers this, but it was probably about a year later, Monster Garage was doing their, like, all-star, two-part season finale, and yep. it was going to be called Rock'em Sock'em Scions, and yep. they wanted to have a Rock'em Sock'em connection. So little did they know they had to call Mattel. Right, because Mattel owned Rock'em Sock'em Robots. So in the grand wisdom of Mattel, and this could have even been Carson, they're like, we want some Hot Wheels designers to be the designers on that episode. So they nominate me yep. <laughs> and my friend uh, John Bedford, and we go down. And I'm sitting there with Mike Desmond, who is an amazing car designer, oh, been at yeah. Mitsubishi, and, uh, and then worked for Jesse right around that time. And, you know we start sketching and talking about ideas and Jesse rolls in and he's, and he looks at me and he literally remembered that conversation of like, Oh wait, didn't I throw you out of my shop? And, then we get a big argument. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't really throw me off this show that you don't own that you're just the star yep. of. <laughs> but, and you still want rights to the rock'em sock'em. Cause I come with that without me, you don't get those rights. <laughs> so we kind of cherry picked the team we wanted to send there. And there was a little poetic justice in there. <laughs> and, and it comes full circle. Cause one thing about Jesse that I think everybody always liked is he was very sort of anti-suit, right? He didn't yes. like the guys in the, in the fancy jackets yeah. and anti-marketing yeah. collared yeah. shirts. Um, and so I rolled in, you know, in a hot wheels t-shirt, whatever, probably two, two baggy of jeans that was uh, popular back in like Oh two Oh three. And, uh, we're sitting there doing everything. And then two days later or day later, whenever I bring in the rendering, right? And I did the rendering because Desmond's like, well, you can draw, you do it, right? I'm sure he got paid. I didn't. <laughs> but I rolled in with this with this uh, cool rendering and I uh, hang it up, you know, as they do their episode thing. And he's like, you drew that? And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. I just do it for those guys. And he's like, that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I think he gained a different level of respect for me when he realized like, oh, yeah, you really – are creative you do have you know because he has a real fine appreciation for artists as carson said he knew chip he wanted chip yeah we and chip, chip wanted guys together at Boyd's. yeah so it was that was kind of neat full circle on that one so cool 
Wow. <laughs> I'm sure there's tape of that somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I love that, that you actually before. had to prove yourself, though. It's like, no, yeah. I can actually do it. Here. Yeah. Oh, you did that? Uh, no, my sister did it. Of course I did. Yeah. You draw? Well, and that I think that's the thing, though, right? I mean, there's a lot of posers in the in the automotive aftermarket industry. There's like guys like, oh, I can weld. Yeah. And, and, you know, in yeah. his world, it was like, well, here's a welder. Weld me something. Right? So, you know, as a designer, he's like, well, you're a designer? Well, well show me. You know? Design and something. so I whipped something up. And uh, I think, you know, that's kind of the nice thing about what I do for a living um, is I still have that skill, right? Like, a, you know, like any craftsman, an artist is just another kind of craftsman. I make something, um, I can bring somebody's dream to, to life. Um, you know, I, Brian, you do that all the time, right? I mean, how many guys call you, you know, want you to draw something or fix something? They've got some idea in their head and you've got to weave together a bunch of whatever, and try to make some beautiful statement out of it. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's every day, and it, it's yeah, it's it's taxing too, and you always feel tested. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, that's half our social media conversations are like, well, you know, I could, if I had those same inputs, I might do this or I might do that, um, you know, and you know, even also just talking us uh, each other off a ledge sometimes in terms of like. <laughs> Yeah. Look what this look what this schmuck did with my art. And I, I always I always feel bad because you, you talk me down from a lot of ledges, man. <laughs> you well, need a you cape. Know, you could replace those a... JNCO jeans that you had back in the two thousands <laughs> with a cape. So Dude. Yeah, I mean it's that's that's the thing that I think has always served me well, even as I've gone more into management and other things in my career, is that I can always sit down with a pencil and a scrap piece of paper and put whatever it is somebody's talking about right there on the paper. And, and, you know, senior management, whoever it might be can just be like, yeah, that's it. You know? And I think for me personally, that quick ability to take all those inputs and, and sketch something up that is cohesive and coherent and put it in front of somebody in, in minutes in often case, has served me really well because I'll sit in a meeting and, and this goes back to grade school. I've always drawn pictures. I mean, I've got notebooks where I start with those perfect notes from Catholic school and they transition into sketches by the third page. <laughs> it's the best. It goes from, it's so funny because it goes from like this illuminated manuscript and it turns out like a Sergio Aragonas kind of like all kinds yeah. of crap going on inside. It's well, that, that skill set becomes a universal language because you can speak with production, manufacturing, engineering, licensing marketing design so that being able to draw like that and get people's thoughts down into something that shows shape form resolution how parts go together whatever it may be that becomes a universal language and that's why it bothers me in fact where i teach is that we insist that kids do drawings first before they jump on the computer if you've not done a sketch or a layout or something you're not just going to go right to the tablet Even i the really tablet is a stylus we like to see drawing i really yep. want to get into that part I want to. I definitely want to have a talk about that because, well, well Brad, this morning, I, I can't say much about what I showed you, Brad, but the sketches I had to do that I shot you the picture. Right, of, right. That was somebody, you know, we were spitballing an idea. I sketched that up. I shot it over. And I was like, dude, that's what we're doing. And I work at a place where nobody else can do that. Yeah. Which to me is funny, but. And, did, but did, no. that get, did that get okay? Did they like it? Oh, yeah, it went. It flew. Okay. Done deal. Because it was badass. Thanks, man. A two-minute sketch. But, I mean, like, that is, 
as, as Carson said, that has been a huge chunk of my career. I mean, I can sit in a meeting where everybody's talking and be taking that talking in. I mean, those early sketches from grade school, I can tell you what the teacher was saying. It's, it's a trippy, like kind of mind thing, but I can, it's for me, I'm listening and sketching at that exact moment. And then I throw it out on the table and everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. Right. I mean, it's an amazing, uh, amazing feeling to be able to put something out there that kind of grabs all the ideas, puts it together in, in a statement. And yeah, we can now, we can now skip all the way to let's evaluate this idea. And that's also, I think, I think not to pat ourselves on the back and I'm not in your class by any stretch, but man, like they have that ability to kind of be universal translator. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, as Carson says, it also it, it transcends language, right? You can be sitting in yeah. China and I can tell you that, you know, Chinglish is a thing as they're talking, especially at a factory. There's a lot of words that are new words that don't have a Chinese equivalent. Oh, right? yeah, we, we've so, had the Engel brothers on before, so we know. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so as they're talking there, there's you know, you know what the conversation was as they as they broke from whatever you were talking about in English to whatever they're talking about or trying to solve. And you can be sketching and be like, hey, I got a solution for that. Here's how these parts are going to fit together or here's how we mold that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then, you know, minutes later, you can redesign the part or recreate whatever it is that you were trying to trying to accomplish based on however it is we're now going to mold that part or, uh, um, you know, fit that part together or whatever. Um, you know, and and I'm sure you guys do this, but I know Chip does it all around Chip's shop. There's a ton of sketches. He'll he'll do a sketch of a of a, you know, drive t- uh, tunnel, you know, how he wants that to come together. I mean, when they build those cars for you know, these multi-million dollar, you know, Riddler award-winning cars, every aspect of that car is designed and you can walk around. I'm sure there's a collection of sketches you could pick up of like, here's the shifter, here's the radio, here's the inside of the glove box. Um, You know, it's all designed. And that's a hard thing to explain to someone when they come to you and they say, well, what does it cost to design a car? You're like, well, what level are we shooting for? How much of yeah. it are we designing? What are we redesigning? Am I engineering things? Am I re-engineering stuff? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. you have some projects, it's one or two sketches, you're done. Yeah. You have other stuff where, I mean, I've done Riddler cars before where I have, and not even a joke, three three to 500 sketches. Yeah. You're just all day just drawing different things. Yeah. Like, oh, this is the hinge for this. This is how we're going to fasten that. Well, and that's what a Riddler cars become these days is it is a, you know, it is a lesson in design. Every aspect of that car has been worked out to its ultimate best it can be by great craftsmen, by great artists. Everybody kind of touches everything. I mean, it's down to like, well, we're going to use all these kind of screws because this screw is the nicest looking screw I can find. Or you have to design the fasteners. That That's, that's a fun thing yeah. too. It, to that point, every time you do a new drawing and make a new part, it has to live and breathe as its part and what it is, and it also has to live and breathe with the total in the whole. And as you go further and further, that resolution takes a lot more discipline. Yep. Oh, yeah, you've got to be five steps ahead of even yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that's that's a weird thing. So, yeah, at that point, you're universal translator, and you're also Kreskin of, you know... <laughs> The sketch pad, you're it's so weird. Yeah. Like do you 
Eric, do you get into that weird, like that right brain shift kind of thing where you lose total track of time when you're working on something? Oh, it's my favorite. It's my Oh, favorite. I love that. I live for that because it, it, a day goes by so great, except when you have to pick up your kid and you realize that he's been waiting outside of the school in the rain for two and a half hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are times, I mean, my wife could tell you stories of me. Uh, I had a studio in my garage for a while and I would go out there and it'd be winter in San Diego. So, you know, it's like 50 degrees. Um, and <laughs> it's cold, I'd be sitting out really there. Cold. You were layering your JNCO jeans. Okay. Yes. Yes. I think it was maybe sweatpants and a t-shirt, but you would forget that it was 70 when you started and then 50 when you were, when you were getting done eight, nine hours later and you've not moved. You've oh. drank in a couple, oh. you've got a couple Red Bulls on your desk or whatever it is you drink. I mean, I listened to a bunch of podcasts and I'm like, oh my God, this podcast has been on loop for three minutes or I'm sorry, like three, four hours. It's the same show over and over again. And, uh, you know, you're just, you're sucked into the drawing and the creativity and the high that you get on that is, is incredible. And my wife would come out and try to start talking to me and I'd try to shush her away because I didn't want to get out of that, you know, because when you're in that zone, you're in that zone and. It is hard to get back to. Oh, yeah. And I, I always wonder if that's what it's like for, like, you know, like somebody who's, like, addicted to, like, crack or something where, you know, they're just like, <laughs> I just need more of this. And you're in there. You're just like, leave, leave, leave. Picture in the head. Go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I use runner's high, I think, as an example. <laughs> okay, that's a better way. Yeah, let's, let's go that way. That's a little Wait, less you're, depraved. You're not tying off a vein and shoving a magic marker in your veins? <laughs> no, oh, you haven't lived till you tried it, man. You know what's wild, though, Carson? I think you guys may have seen some pictures. Um, we had a, a fundraiser for our school this past weekend. Right. And it was at the Lux, which is an art studio place in North County, San Diego. And so there's there's a number of artists in the neighborhood. And the people putting the show on were like, well, we're going to an art place. Let's get all the artists to do live art. And I'm like, I do not want to do live art. I was yeah. all like bent out of shape about it. And my wife had promised my time. And I'm like, I don't want to go to a party and draw. She's like, why? I go, because I'm going to end up drawing the entire time and not talking to anybody. Like either that's going to happen or I'm going to draw a really yeah. crappy drawing. Yeah. Right. And uh, so about half of that happened. I sat down. I started to work on something. I had to get all of my old supplies out because I'm doing it all manual now. Right. Like, uh, you know, I'm literally got to get my pastels out, my Webrel pads, these old markers. Nice. I mean, Twenty-year-old markers. I got some chart pack ad markers that I'm pretty sure are illegal to even yep. own in the state. <laughs> yeah. It's like the electric set. Once you open them, and you're instantly high. Oh, and it was awesome. Do you use them? And I kept, I keep them in Tupperware because I'm like, these are valuable, and I know I like them, and I don't ever want to pay eight dollars for a marker again. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, opening that stuff up and. Sure enough, I was, I, the skill is still there. You just picked it up and I started sketching and, you know, meanwhile, there's all these people are partying and they're like, well, when are you going to party with us? When are you going to have fun with us? And they're trying to talk to me while I'm drawing. And then I finally kind of put my marker down and, and started to hang out with everybody. And they're like, man, you were so into that. I go, dude, I was in some other place, man. I wasn't yep. even at this party. Yep. <laughs> well, I gotta say you did look good in white fur. Well, was yeah, it all that was a good fur? look for you. It was an all white. Yeah, he carried it off very well. Yeah. Very, very much. Yeah. I I just wondered at some point, did you like find one of your markers missing and there's like four guys crowded into the back <laughs> of a rental car with a paper bag and a marker? <laughs> passing it around. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, yeah. not, 
I worried about that, but I was more worried they'd like pick up my stuff and start using it, right? And start. Oh, yeah, I'm no. like, these are not Crayola. These are expensive <laughs> yeah. markers. That wasn't a rounded nib. Yeah, it is now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. They were like, well, why do you have this set and this set? And because I have literally, because this was college, right? So you try everything. So I got some trias. I've got some ad markers. I've got some uh, Prisma colors in there. And they're like, why do you have all these different kinds of markers? I go, because the nibs are different and the tips are different. And this one I can put in a in an air marker. That what's an air marker? Yeah, oh. yeah, it's an air airbrush marker. for your marker. Yeah, <laughs> well, you make your own air marker when you're really poor. <laughs> Been there, done. You yeah. drill a hole in the end of one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh my god. I did that a lot at uh, yeah, the Art Institute. I remember sitting there blowing through markers before. I was like, yeah, this will work great. Give me a great effect for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why well, so, is Brian passed out? Oh, it's, he's working on his drawing. Yeah. He'll be fine. <laughs> and really, you get prepared. And either you become a really good artist or you're set up to do balloon animals, you know? <laughs> Sculpture. <laughs> Sculpture. <laughs> I would just always wanted to ask the question as a kid, I was always a huge hot wheels fan. I remember when the first editions came out and we'd spend the weekends with my grandmother and it was kind of our tradition on our way home. She would drive us by the, the store and we would buy hot wheels and we'd have those things torn out of the pack by the time we walked across the parking lot. And I remember as a kid, hot wheels, you know, back in the late sixties, early seventies, they had really great advertisements. And as a kid, if you're really into cars, it was really, really cool uh, advertisers to a point to where I would cut them out and save them. And they had the little catalogs and the books and I had all that sort of stuff. And I always wondered what it was like. What was a regular day walking through the door from the day, time you started? What was a day of working at Hot Wheels like? <laughs> well, it, it, it was awesome to be very honest. You know, you'd come in in the morning and you're again, you're with all these amazing creatives. So, you know, People are sitting around, they're talking about whatever projects, you may be talking with some of your partners from other, you know, whatever your project might be. Um, you know, I was young, so I was oftentimes trying to seek advice from people who had, you know, done it, different experience. So a lot of my mornings would start out with like, whatever I finished the evening before or the afternoon before, I'd be sharing it with somebody and trying to get advice, feedback, um, whatever. And then I'd, you know, return to my desk and I'd start working on something. I uh, start trying to revise a concept or start a new concept, um, you know, sketch something up. There was always a you know, handful of meetings. I mean, it's it's not all uh, bells and whistles. You got to go to a meeting where you're with planning. And oftentimes it feels like the planners uh, chastising you because you didn't get something done by the fri the previous Friday or whatever. So, you know, you have deadlines that you have to try to hit. Um, you have partners that you got to make sure are getting what they need, be it an engineer or the packaging team needs a meeting about the latest track set that you've come up with so that they can come up with what the, the packaging is going to look like. Um, you know, so, you know, you've got those various meetings and whatnot, but a typical day is, you know, you, was usually, you know, trying to create something, trying to solve some sort of problem, oftentimes visually. Um, I, I am more of a visual side guy, uh, but there are there were people I worked with who were trying to solve a problem of how to make something crash and look like a real car crash and then snap back in one one motion. Uh, and, you know, we work with those guys and they'd show you some new prototype. I mean, 
one of the things that I got to do as a, as a real strong visual guy is work with the guys who were creating the next big cool feature or track set or something. And they might have a cool new model to show me that day. And then we would be brainstorming the theme of like, well, this track set, what's going on here? Um, and I'm like, well, you know, maybe it could be a tornado and the truck cars driving down the outside of the tornado as it comes down and then it'll shoot through and come up the bliss, uh, up the booster and into the tornado and spin back down. Um, Ooh, kind of and, the old scorcher chamber. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you'd come up with these crazy ideas and then, you know, you'd start doing some sketches on it or whatnot. And inevitably I'd sit down with like a guy like Nathan or Carson. And I, I actually really liked Nathan at, at this time. Cause he was always telling me to do things bigger. He'd be like, you know, I'd start sketching something and he'd be like, yeah, but you should do it from like the angle of your sitting in the car. So the tornado looks massive on the, you know, on the page and it very cinematic type stuff that he would do um, that he always coached me into because he was always looking ahead to the commercial. So you talked about those advertisements and those commercials. You're kind of like, how is this going to be presented to a kid? Right. As this car is jumping through this shark's mouth. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, on this crazy set. It's, it's crazy idea. But you know, like, there was one kid out there who didn't want it going through the mouth. He wanted it coming out of the other end. He was like, yeah, <laughs> his name was Brian. <laughs> I did want to be a proctologist for, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but you know, I, I, that was the fun stuff. And, uh, you know, then you'd, you know, after a certain period of time, you'd have some various other meetings with marketing. So you'd be doing some presentation level drawings, which were usually really fun. Cause it meant you got to get the markers out and really go to town and, um, take that in and share it with everybody and convince them of what you needed to do. So you get to put your salesman, uh, hat on. And I think Carson's talked about that of that's where that right brain, left brain kind of stuff was working for me as I was able to shift back and forth pretty confidently into like, here's the idea and here's why it'll be cool. Um, and I listened to guys like Carson and Nathan and, and others in my career who were, would give me, you know, their experience and I could add it to my, my experience and build an argument of like, this is cool, right? A pitch, right? I mean, I'm usually pitching the marketing guy on like why we should do this. Um, and if you can get them excited, they, they get on board as your partner and together you can make some really cool stuff. Well, one quick side note here too, was the physical environment that we worked in. At that time, Mattel was like a 10 or 11 building campus between the technology, the studio, the tower, the support services, um, the design center is where we were focused. The design center was a 100,000 square foot building. And if you gave 100,000 square foot to designers and say, decorate this the way you want to, hang stuff from the ceiling, build things in your cubicle, do whatever you want to to express your passion, it was that on steroids. So we had all of Hot Wheels design and engineering, all the support, all of Barbie was in there. Fisher Price had a games a division in there. We had um, uh, the technology. Yeah, boys. Yeah, boys. Action, action figures. We had a full model shop and a rapid prototyping studio, a, a molding facility. So you literally were in a building within that building. You never had to walk outside of that building to take a concept from a piece of paper, and literally a few weeks later have a physical part in your hand. Um, and it was, it was, it was amazing. So I was talking about the gas station earlier. My boss came to me and said, "Look, we need to build another conference room in the Hot Wheels area, and you're gonna, you're gonna manage the project." And I said, well, what do we have to do? He goes, just build a con – this was John Handy, the VP of design. He goes, just build a conference room. I said, John, it's Hot Wheels. Can we do something cool? He goes, well, what do you think? I go, I don't know. Let's build a gas station. 
And he left to me. He goes, you want to build a gas station? I said, yeah, full-size, full-scale gas station inside. It'll be the Hot Wheels gas station. You know, the awning that goes over, we'll park one of our cars there. Tupper had a 23T with a big Hot Wheels logo on it. We'll do like the car of the week of an employee and park it there. The room inside will be the conference room. It'll have an overhang, a big sign. And so he said, well, you can do that, but you've got to design it. You've got to draw it up. And I, you know me, I'm into antique gas pumps and stuff like that, so it wasn't a big deal. But he said, here's the caveat. It cannot cost $1 more than what a regular conference room would cost. So I said, okay. And then once we got going into it, our people that did our scenic props and our um, uh, samples division who got the toys ready for Toy Fair for presentation and did props and assemblies and podiums and backdrops, they said, well, if you're doing this, can we paint on the wall a big mural? So we had a mural as if you were coming from the desert as it went along over 130 feet. The desert kind of went into the hills, kind of went into the Hollywood Hills with the Hollywood sign in the background, and then went to the beach like you were coming to California, like Route 66. Then Barbie built a dream house inside there. The games and puzzle people built giant game icons. And the so movie that, theater was awesome. Oh, they I mean, no, it was really going into that place was fun. It was invigorating. I mean, there were days that we drove electric go karts through the aisles just for fun. We had a remember the Segway we had for a while there, Eric. <laughs> oh, I remember when they when they hid the Segway. The Segway went. Home <laughs> 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 Everyone they hid it. <laughs> it was kind of like a frat house. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, you know, everybody got along. It was super inventive. There, remember, uh, what, what was his name? Um, not, I always want to say Vidal, but the model maker guy whose cubicle Badan. was so full of stuff he couldn't walk in. Vidal. Father Guido Sarducci. Yes, yes. <laughs> you literally could not walk into his cubicle. It was filled from the desk up about three foot, four foot high with papers and projects and parts and pieces. And every tool there. in the world. <laughs> he had every tool. Oh, yeah. And so you would go in that place, and so literally you were never starving for inspiration. You could just walk the cubicles and get ideas on things, and you could find partners no matter how obtuse or crazy your idea was. You didn't have to walk far for somebody to say, hey, I'll help you on that. And so when I ended up in my career with my advancement, I ended up going to the tower when I was working in the licensing at the end of my career there. I used to spend as much time as I could in the design center because that was the heartbeat of that place. That was where it all started and it all finished. Yep. I mean, it was such a, such a cool place and such a cool time. And, you know, just a great, great place for, especially for a young designer like myself at the time to, to learn about design and manufacturability and toys. And I mean, I left there after about five years with what I consider to be like a master's degree in toy development, marketing and design. And I'll say, too, that at that time, we had really supportive and really good upper management from John Handy, who ran design, who could be a bit of a taskmaster and could really you know, regulate people to getting things done. And he was great in a competition. He loved competition. But he gave us all if you were on a on a spin, and you were doing good stuff like Eric was and some of the stuff we were involved in. He'd give you all the bandwidth in the world. He'd support you and he'd fight the battles for you. He'd take care of budget stuff. He'd figure a way for things to get done. That kind of spirit and camaraderie of innovation as much as it was competitive was i've never seen a place like that that had upper management at least in the design center that supported innovation at the highest level back in those days they since have kind of in my opinion lost a bit of that thing it's simple things like they took down the gas station they took down the barbie dream house they painted the walls all white it looks like a dentist office now yeah open concept cubicles all yeah. that nine yards but 
Carson, I think you hit on an interesting point too, especially with John. He was into competition, but he also yeah. fostered great ideas. Yes. And one of the reasons that Carson and I became fast friends was, again, that skill of me being able to visualize stuff. So we'd be sitting in a meeting and Carson would be talking and Carson was running collector at the time. I was not part of that group, but I was this young guy who liked that stuff. And I wanted to live this Hot Wheels lifestyle and put Hot Wheels on stuff. And, you know, there was projects like we went to SEMA and I just started sketching stuff up and Carson's like, can I get that guy on the team? And we was because I was doing these cool drawings and Carson had these cool ideas and together it was starting to come together. A guy like John Handy was like, I like that. And he kept throwing some money at it. He kept yeah. allowing us to do stuff. Yeah. And he kept fighting those battles, like you said, because he believed in what we were starting to create. He could see the vision. You know, three sketches was all yeah. he needed to see the, the vision. Well, then we could go do 10 more sketches um, because he knew that that's what it would take for marketing to see the vision. And each step we got to do more because of the skill set that we were combining, um, you know, in terms of like just creating cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, I already told the story to these guys about going to SEMA with the twin mill and him giving the budget to build all the prototypes and all the props to put on display, which turned into licensing. But yeah. John also did things like he paid for the whole design uh, staff, the cherry picked the best designers to go on a European design fact finding tour. He um, sponsored cool hunting and trend spotting uh, adventures where we were paid a regular salary and we could go out for a week or two and just find new innovative things that were happening, either not necessarily toys, but like technology, you know, cell phone use, apps, you know, inter, uh, you know, integrated toys, you know, toys that had, you know, chips or computers and things. You got to remember this is, you know, years ago when this wasn't being done, but John and others instilled the fact that, no, this has got to be a constantly evolving business. It's got to constantly grow. It has heritage and it has history. But it's got to grow, and it only grows through innovation. And I, I tell you, those were some of the craziest, most fun, freeform days. There was a lot of structure, though. There was budgets. There was reporting. There was, you know, you know the the uh, personnel department had their issues with the way certain things were done, and you had compliance. You had manufacturing compliance. You had child safety laws. You know about things that could be swallowed or ingested or broken off. And so you really had a lot of constraints. But I, I will give John. I know I'm preaching up John here, but I'll give John a lot of credit that he kind of made that stuff invisible to us. He took care of the other stuff once innovation was taken care of. And it allowed guys like me and Eric to, to grow and build new careers. Yeah. Yeah, he was really good at that stuff. I mean, he would hire some people, you know, to mix in around us that could take on the accounting or take on, yeah. you know, more engineering or whatever, you know, on the design side that would allow the designers to really focus on design and less of yeah. the other stuff. Um, and I think he got more creativity that way than most people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 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 kind of work that we would produce would be, you know, at a higher quality um, because we didn't have to do a bunch of stuff we didn't like. And uh, I think as designers and as creatives, when they ask you to do paperwork or they ask you to do these other forms and all this other stuff, it's like that stuff takes two, three times longer for you to do because you don't want to do it. You, it's not part of your DNA. Um, it's not exciting and, uh, you know, it ends up eating up your time and causing you to go slow versus pumping out a few more sketches and there's more value in you putting out more work and having that support around you to do the other things. So the other thing I found interesting in that environment that if you came up with a new idea or a new approach or licensing or design or innovation, whatever it was, you were allowed to carry the thing all the way through where in most organizations that doesn't happen which was great. The other thing is you, if you were an advocate of something, a part of a team, and you had a profound opinion or position or had a, you know, 
reference and backup to prove you knew what you were doing. He, John, really encouraged you to take the lead, and he gave designers a role in that business that generally only marketing guys got. So a lot of times we ended up doing and helping out with presentations at Toy Fair, presentations to buyer meetings, because us as car guys knew more of the factual history of the cars than the marketing guys did. And, and, and they allowed us to do that. They would push us out of that forefront. So basically you're taking designers uh, away from the task of design and you're giving them more corporate experience, but still holding their feet to the fire and accountable for the design part, but basically giving you new skill sets. Yep. Wow. Which I've worked at a lot of places. I've never seen it like that. That's that's something I want to touch on. Um, I definitely want to do, if you guys don't mind, I want to kind of break this into two parts and really get sure. into that side of things. Okay. Yeah. If you guys are up for that. Because I think sure. that that's a super, well, listen to my great language skills. In Catholic school, it's finest here. I just think that's a super important part of what we're discussing here is getting into that that working relationship between creatives and a management team that is either creative on their own or understands creatives. Oh that, yeah. That's I mean, a hard thing to find out there. Yeah, it is. And I will tell you, like, even where I'm at today, I chose the company that I'm working at wicked cool because I knew one of the owners and I knew him since 20 years ago at Mattel when he was a fresh face marketing guy with a, you know, a, literally a brand new MBA from Vanderbilt. And he showed up, uh, you know, in the house, in the design center. And I was like, I don't remember. I got into some meeting with him cause he was in boys action. His name's Jeremy. And he, he was cool. Like he was a dork. He liked, he liked, uh, toys. Um, I recently found out how he got the job and because he just pestered it forever. Cause like he really wanted to do toys. And as a marketing guy, there were few like that. And so for me, I was like, this is a guy I want to work with one day. Now he owns a toy company. And I decided like, if I'm going to work with somebody, I want to work with people who understand me and who valid, uh, who value what I can bring. And that is creativity and, um, you know, the whole nine yards. And it's more, it's that blending of the business and creativity. It's, it's stepping into the entrepreneurial side of things as, especially with toys coming up with an idea and selling everybody on that idea and just getting people excited um, from the earliest step and, you know, to be around people like that. My previous company, I had that uh, to some degree, especially in the early days. I was working, you know, with Spin Master, I did all kinds of great stuff, combining a lot of the stuff we talked about and working with some really creative guys at the top of the company who really valued what it is that you produced and would encourage you to keep doing more. Um, and, you know, it made the days not so long, uh, made it uh, rewarding to come into the office and, um, you know, every day you were creating something and you knew somebody was going to listen, take a look at it and evaluate it if, and, you know, evaluate it fairly. It wasn't just going to be like, ah, I don't need that. Let's not look at it because you don't know when you're going to have the great idea. It could be today, tomorrow, three years from now. Um, but you know, they just want to keep you creating because the more stuff you create, I think a lot of times it's, it is a volume game. Um, it's like betting, right? I mean, the toy oh, industry yeah. is a lot like betting. Mm-hmm. You just keep making stuff, keep making stuff and hoping one of them's a hit, you yeah. know, and then when you get a hit, you just ride it as long yeah, as you can. It's a very opportunistic business. It's not incremental. It's not slow build. It's like when you look at the toys that have really taken off in the industry from Hot Wheels in the 60s, I don't care if it's Cabbage, Cabbage Patch or Taniguchi or Pokemon or Paw Patrol or anything, 
the big growth has been in the ones that were game changers, and they weren't incremental. They didn't sneak in and build slow, but slowly, slowly. They were opportunistic. They changed the toy industry. They created new opportunities, and then you foster that and put a base underneath it. But yeah, fostering innovation that is opportunistic takes a different mindset than incremental uh, opportunities. You know, and and I've and I've been you know in the last two companies I've been with, I've been fortunate that they're not as big. Um, you know, some of the plotting giants now, like Mattel, yeah, they're they're stuck in an old way. A lot of ways, um, they keep doing things the the way they've always done it. And the small companies are like, look, yeah. we can't afford to get an Avengers license, and we can't afford Harry Potter, or we can't afford whatever Star Wars. Um, you know, and and even if we could afford it, by the time we're done, we're gonna pay Disney more than we make. Um, so you know, that creates new opportunity and. You know, somebody's like, hey, well, why don't we make our own TV show? And they're like, well, who do we got to work on it? Uh, you know, well, let's put the preschool guys on it and we'll put this uh, these two people in entertainment on it. And we're going to stick them in a closet for a couple of days. And they came out with Paw Patrol, you know, <laughs> and, you know, it is it isn't that far from it. There weren't that yeah. many people who yeah. worked on it. It wasn't a big committee. It was a bunch of guys in a couple of places working really tirelessly to just while one another and and build on each other's ideas um, and collaboratively come up with an amazing, um, amazing property. And, um, you know, it, as Carson said, it's it, it the new opportunity is to just go at it and you break frame and you do something that nobody else had done. Um, and some some of those things work and other things don't. And um, I think there's an old guy that I saw uh, remember from Hot Wheels, Gary Saffer, who said timing is everything. So, yep. You know, we had another show after Paw Patrol that I worked on that I think is honestly just as good, uh, Rusty Rivets, but it it never really resonated in the marketplace. And, um, you know, at least not to the level everyone wanted. Well, everyone wanted Paw Patrol. Um, and it's like, well, Paw Patrol sort of a generational thing that, you know, while it checked all the boxes, no one could predict it was going to be the juggernaut that it became. Right. Um but then the same company starts to evaluate every idea that way. Um, and it's like, well, good Lord, I hit a grand slam. Um, and you don't do that every time up. First of all, you need to get four people on base before you can hit the home run. That <laughs> yeah. becomes a grand slam. And, you know, it's it takes a lot of people to do that. Um, you know, I, I was lucky. And, and because of my skill set, I designed, you know, pretty much most of the vehicles that you see on screen in Paw Patrol. And quite a bit of the backpacks and, and the other key assets in that show. Um, Cause I was in the right place at the right time and had the right skill to do it. Um, you know, similarly, there's a ton of other people that worked either on my team or alongside of me that contributed to all of those ideas. Um, they might've come up with the feature that then I styled or I styled something and then they turned it into a, a toy or um, you know, there's somebody who designed the, the actual facial look of the characters and, work through all those different aspects. Um, so being able to be on a team with all those creatives um, was pretty powerful. And then again, for me, shining in that was my ability to put pen to paper at any given time, right? So I'm sitting in a meeting with a director, a writer, uh, an art director for the show, some CG modelers, and they're looking at me like, you know, are you one of the suits that pays for this? And I start sketching an idea and they're like, oh wait, that actually looks kind of cool. And then they say, well, well, who are you? What do you do? And I said, well, I'm one of the, the toy designers. And they're like, oh, that's kind of cool. I like toys. And 
all of a sudden that snowballs into them realizing, well, you're creative too. So your ideas are valid, right? Cause they don't tend to like the people who, who just pay the bills and wear the, the nice suits either. Um, but again, that ability to just sketch something up. And then they're like, well, we don't really have any vehicle guys on, on staff. Why don't you sketch all of it? And that snowballs um, to me being in the studio for a couple of weeks, doing all that work right alongside all of the animators. Um, and that was an amazing experience. So, um, you know, this, this wild ride that I've been on, it's all creativity. It's all, you know, visualizing stuff and kind of seeming it all together in a cohesive way that makes sense. And then as Carson was saying, this new skill set that I have that allows me to present those ideas in a way that somebody else who doesn't, who maybe isn't as creative can glam onto and then start to sell on their end. Right. Cause your marketing guy, he's going to start selling the sales staff. And the sales staff has to go out and sell to a buyer, right? All these people are in the way before you ever get to the kid or the mom. You've got to sell all those different people on that this thing's going to make a bunch of money or this thing's going to sell or people are going to want this. Um, so those are skills that, again, you kind of add on later. Um, you know, maybe you have some of those first, but for me, it was that uh, always comes back to my ability to draw something because you can put that drawing up and everybody can understand it. Um, more than any words you can say. Right on. Yep. Man, thank you for wow. that, that insight. That was awesome. Cool. So designers are agents of change. So so I've always been that opposite guy. That when I start getting resistance, I feel like, well, they're, they're just giving me more ammunition. That's fuel for me. Because they wouldn't be arguing with me if they didn't think, one, they were 100% right and I was wrong, which no one's ever 100% right, or if they don't think I have some merit in my argument. So there is value there. So I spin that back around the other way. Well, you know, one of those other things that's interesting as we were talking about John, and it sparks me in the, in the head right now, because I also talked to this other guy um, for years that I enjoyed talking to, Sam Basker, who is an old engineer from Mattel. Um, and he ended up at Spin Master with me. And he used to talk about, you know, you, you give a designer a blank piece of paper and you, you don't know what you're going to get, but you put some parameters in place, a price point, a little bit of information. And it's those stressors as, as Carson was talking about. Um, you talk about John Handy and he always liked competition. He would make everything a competition, yes. which would then create additional stress, which would then push people into that, space where they might be at their most creative where mm -hmm. they're going to try to find that solution and and john was always a big fan of he gave me an award one time for it was a post-it note with nine dots on it right evenly spaced nine dots because i was outside the nine dots um, <laughs> because literally we we went into this competition it was a guy's birthday party um and we were doing a a couple of robots, right? Everybody was doing these tethered robot things and they were going to battle each other. This is, you know, pre-battle bots. These guys used to do something they called the Terminator. And a buddy of mine and I, we get into this Terminator competition and we come up with this idea. They said, okay, you can, you can launch projectiles, but you can't do this and you can't, they wrote all these rules. And we asked one question, can you control the projectile? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I go, can you RC control the projectile? And they're like, yeah, but you can't launch that projectile until a 10 second count. So we went back in the garage. We were not even going to compete until we had this idea. Epiphany, like 48 hours before the competition. So we buy two of the chassis and we outfit them 
The bottom chassis meets all the specifications because that's largely our robot. The second one on top that breaks all the rules because it's now a projectile, so it's not subject to the rules. And we don't launch the two. We literally split the robot in two. We drove the second one, the projectile, off the top and immediately had two robots controlled each by us. And we destroyed everyone in the competition. I mean, we, <laughs> we burned $300 electric chainsaws. And all we had were flares on the front of our little two little robots. They were little metal boxes with flares on it. And we would drive and we had belts full of batteries because the only other innovation we came up with was give it more power. And, you know, we had a little like extra turbo switch and the gearboxes would get tore up because they got too much voltage. And we could then pin the guy and just put the flare on him with these things and just burn the robots down. And we come back to work and everybody is angry at us. I mean, they're pissed because we, we ruined the competition by coming up with a solution that just, it worked within the rules. Um, and as John said, it was thinking outside the box or thinking outside of the nine dots. Um, and it was really those kind of creative things, those stressors of like, we, well, we want to compete. We don't know what to do. And then bing, an idea. Yep. Um, and that was really kind of cool. Um, and I've seen that a lot in my career is you get that, just that right amount of stress and you can create something really amazing because you want to overcome, right? Yeah. Well, awesome. And I, what I, what I'd like to do is I really want to pick up on kind of what we were, we were discussing here with, um, creatives and management and how the two can work together in the right environment. If you don't mind, we'll do this in the next episode. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome, man. And let's, uh, so let's, let's thank you for now for, for a a mind blowing episode 50. I cannot say thank you enough for your time, your insight, and both of you guys, Carson, for joining us tonight. And your excitement to tell us this yeah. stuff. It's like, wow. Now you know why I'm such a big fan of this guy. I mean, yeah. you know, wow. Not just his career and what he's done, but I mean, he, he gets it at so many different levels that it, it's fun just to talk to him just on anything. Exactly. Well, I, definitely, I definitely am a passionate person. <laughs> well, it doesn't show here. Can you can you work on that no, for the next? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, awesome. no, I I can't wait though, and I, I so we're gonna pick this up uh, for those of you listening. Sorry to do this to you. We're gonna cliffhanger the hell out of this. But um, we're, we're gonna bring we're gonna bring Eric back. We'll bring well, Carson. You can come too. And Thank um, you. I'll tag along anyway. <laughs> oh come on, you're a fan favorite, man. I think you're going to be replacing me. In the last poll, it was, I think it was 80% wanted Carson, the remaining 20%. Give them time. They'll peel back the layers. (laughs) (laughs) But awesome. So so thank you. And uh, we'll we'll catch you guys uh, back next week on the same thing. Nice. Thanks again, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Have a good one, guys. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com. Effective change is when you're probably the most animated and the most excited. Because you're on an emotional cue, you're on an emotional ride, and everything's coming to fruition to that one point you're trying to make. 
that's the point you're going to make a breakthrough. So kind of where you are at work, sometimes when you're getting the greatest resistance, it's not because you're doing things wrong. It's because you're doing things right and people are challenged because they know you're right. They know you're better. They may know you're smarter and they see change coming. And let's face it, people don't like change.